0: to you by the Capital One Quicksilver card. With Quicksilver you earn unlimited 1.5 percent cash back on every purchase everywhere. That's unlimited 1.5 percent cash back on everything you buy. And unlimited really means unlimited. With Quicksilver there's no limit to how much cash back you can earn. Capital One, what's in your wallet? There are thousands of people who have been wrongfully convicted of crimes. Some are small crimes and others are much more serious. The case I'm going to present today is one of the more serious ones. It's quite interesting, and it has left me with so many questions. Today, I'll be discussing one of the cases involving Stephen Avery. I say one because Stephen has been involved in two serious crimes, which makes his story pretty unique. He was convicted of murder, and I'll briefly talk about this case later in the episode. But for now, I'm going to introduce the real reason I'm here today. On July 29th, 1985, Stephen Avery was arrested for sexual assault, but the case just doesn't add up. I'm Whitley Rutt, and welcome to Convicted. Let's start from the beginning. Stephen was born in 1962 to Allen and Dolores Avery. He grew up in Manitowoc County, Wisconsin, and his family owned a salvage yard in two rivers. His mother said that he went to an elementary school for slower students. And when he got to high school, he could barely function. He reportedly had an IQ of 70 and eventually dropped out of high school. On July 24, 1982, Avery married Lori Matheson, who was a single mother. They went on to have four children together, Rachel, Jenny, and twins, Stephen and Will. There's not much information on Avery and his early life, and not many people outside of Wisconsin had even heard of him until Netflix decided to make a documentary about him, which was called Making a Murder." This documentary is obviously about the murder he was accused of. And although that case seems interesting, it's not the case I'm here to discuss. And before we get too far ahead of ourselves, we need to discuss some of Stephen's earlier charges. Stephen has several past criminal charges. When he was 18... He got caught robbing a bar with a friend. He served 10 months of a two-year sentence in the county jail. In 1982, Avery was charged with animal cruelty after throwing a cat in a bonfire, pouring gas on it, and watching it burn to death. He later made a statement about this incident. I was young and stupid and hanging out with the wrong people. He served nine months in jail. In 1985, he ran his cousin Sandra Morris's car off the road and pointed a gun at her. The gun was not loaded, and Avery claimed that he wanted her to stop spreading rumors about him. The previous year, Sandra had filed a complaint claiming that Steven had exposed himself on several occasions, which he obviously claimed was not true. He received a six-year sentence for endangering safety while evincing a depraved mind. And possession of a firearm, but was granted bail. He had a criminal past, and although they weren't major crimes, they needed to be brought up. Before I get into Avery's cases, I just want to say that he truly has bad luck. That's the most simple and honest way to put it, and yes, that is my opinion, but with all the facts and evidence I found on these cases, that's what I believe. Now, I know I'm jumping ahead here and kind of going out of order, but after he was falsely accused of rape, served jail time, and was released for that, he was convicted of murder. I don't want to dwell on this case, so I'm going to make a long story short. release in 2003, Avery filed a $36 million lawsuit against Manitowoc County, its former sheriff, and its former district attorney for wrongful conviction and imprisonment, and that was for the rape charges and the conviction of the sexual assault. In November 2005, with his civil suit still pending, he was arrested for the murder of photographer Teresa Hallback, and in 2007 was convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment without parole. Now let's go back to July 29th, 1985. Penny Bernstein was out running along the beach of Lake Michigan when an unknown man forced her into a wooded area and sexually assaulted her. Based only on a physical description of Bernstein's attacker, police provided photos of nine men. Bernstein selected the photograph of Stephen Avery, who was arrested the following day. At trial, Bernstein identified Avery as her attacker. A state forensic examiner testified that a hair recovered from a shirt of Avery's was coherent with Bernstein's hair. However, he did not present knowledgeable information about the limitations of hair microscopy. I personally find it interesting that Avery was presented 16 alibi witnesses, including the clerk of a store in Green Bay, Wisconsin, who recalled Avery accompanied by his wife and four children buying paint from the store, a checkout tape, Put the purchase at 5:13 pm. Bernstein put the attack at 3:50 pm, and she estimated that it lasted about 15 minutes, which meant that Avery would have had to leave the scene of the attack, walk a mile to the nearest parking area, drive home, load his family into the car, and drive 45 miles away in just over an hour. This just doesn't seem possible or even logical to me. I also can't understand why police wouldn't have considered this evidence more in the investigation. The jury discussed and deliberated for only four hours before convicting Avery almost exclusively on the eyewitness account. On December 14th, 1985, he was sentenced to 32 years in prison. This makes me question the Wisconsin criminal justice system. I don't see how they could sentence a man to 32 years in prison based on the information and evidence they were presented. I also believe the jury may have made their decision based on the fact Avery did have somewhat of a criminal history with behavior against women. Avery maintained his innocence, and in 2001, the Wisconsin Innocence Project became involved in his case. The following year, It was granted a court order for DNA testing of a single pubic hair found on the victim. In September, 2003, a state lab matched the hair to Gregory A. Allen, an area man who was already in prison for sexual assault. This is interesting to me because some people believed that Allen was the real assailant from the beginning, but the police never investigated him. All charges against Avery were finally dropped, and he was released from prison after 18 years. This is when Avery filed that $36 million lawsuit against the Manitowoc County Police Department that I talked about earlier. It was later discovered that in 1995, Allen had confessed to having committed a sexual assault in Manitowoc County, for which someone else was convicted, which was Stephen Avery. But authorities never pursued his claim at the time. In this case, I believe authorities went wrong in so many ways. The biggest question I have is, why didn't police do DNA testing from the very beginning? This could have easily prevented the wrongful conviction of Stephen Avery and could have proved the true assailant guilty. It is also crazy that police chose to ignore the confession of Allen, and I can't figure out why they wouldn't have looked into him more closely. He literally confessed to their face. I believe the way this case was handled was wrong, and authorities should have investigated more before convicting Avery. This also makes me question the criminal justice system as a whole. Is it even effective if they wrongfully convict people? Is it truly helping the American public? What do you think? Next time on Convicted.